0: Thanks everyone for coming. Um, Thank you Gina and to Camden Arts Centre for hosting us tonight and of course to Ellie for coming along. So just as a a, a bit more of an introduction to myself, my name is Nick, I'm Artquest Senior Programme Coordinator. Um, We're an organisation that works to support visual artists at all stages of their career by connecting them to resources, networks and opportunities that they need to sustain um, and develop their practices. So um, just to give you a bit of background, Practice 360 is a talks program that um, looks at some of the daily demands on time that an artist might face and considers how they can be used positively to fuel practice or in some cases be integrated into it entirely. Um, It really looks at where the boundaries of art practice and the stuff of surviving as an artist blur. But today we'll be thinking about ethics and the impact of living and working as an artist and how one's practice uh, and personal and political values can impact and influence one another. Um, and we're really um, lucky tonight to be joined by Ellie Harrison all the way from Glasgow. Thank you for coming. All right. <laughs> um, and um, as a bit of background to Ellie, ever since her early work, such as Eat 22, <coughs> for which she photographed everything she ate for a year, there's been a blurring between Ellie Harrison's life and work and an ongoing struggle to balance the two. Over the last six years, as her work has become more politicised, she has developed ever more extreme systems and rules to enable her to live her values and minimise her impact on the world, and be as efficient as possible, maximise her work time, pushing out all unnecessary objects and relationships as a result. In this talk, as part of the Practice 360 programme, she will discuss how the rational path of continual progress became ultimately and ironically unsustainable, and how, at a certain point, she had to try to learn compromise in order to survive. So that's it for me. I'll hand over to you. That's um, the whole talk, Nick. Is it? covering like, it all. <laughs> <"Pub> it <on."> all.
1: <laughs> Just a very short crazy of it. Okay. So thank you very much for having me. Thanks for that introduction, Nick. I did write it myself, actually, and <laughs> I will be referring to it um, throughout this talk. Um, so it's a very great privilege to be able to come back to my hometown to prove what a success. I've made of my life um, in front of my friends and family. There aren't actually any of my family members here, because I told them not to come, but I see, I see an old friend from school at the back, so that is very exciting. So she will be able to witness um, the success that I've made of my life. So this isn't um, a normal artist talk. I do do quite a lot of normal artist talks. This is more of a meta artist talk, where I'm going to be talking A lot less about the work directly, and more about the messy stuff that surrounds the work, or the not-so-messy stuff, as you can see from the contents of my fridge. Um, The stuff that we call everyday life. So I'm hoping to show how totally intertwined these two things are, and how I believe um, the everyday choices that you make, and the way that you behave, become so central to defining your ethical code, So, I believe that you are, as an artist, what you eat. I'm gonna be showing um, some snippets of a few projects that I've done over the course of the last uh, few years um, as we go through in order to illustrate some of these ideas. Um, And I hope that there'll be lots of things, or at least some things, out of everything that I'm talking about, Uh, which will relate to your own lives as artists or whatever else you happen to do. But I want to start for the first 10 minutes or so by giving you a little bit of context to my practice to help frame the rest of the talk. Um, So apologies if this first section is a little bit didactic. It's really helped me to kind of um, lay out what it is I think I'm doing. Over the last uh, year or two, I've been trying to hone down my practice to the simplest possible statements, And at the moment it's looking a bit like this. So my work aims to investigate, expose and challenge the absurd consequences of our capitalist system and to explore the impact free market forces are having on our society but also our individual day-to-day lives, so I just want to pick this apart a little bit and give you a few examples of the sort of things that I'm talking about. So by investigate, what I mean is using art as a research process to help me answer questions that I have about the world. So in this case, why do we keep having um, recurring periods of financial crisis? in the case of this work, what is the connection between the global economic system and our food supply? And then by expose, um, I mean using the privileged platforms that artists are given, so the opportunity to exhibit their work or give, give talks like this one, in order to share this knowledge with other people and to highlight the elements of it, which cause me most concern. And then finally, by challenge, um, I mean moving beyond the art world altogether into direct political campaigning to try to affect real positive social change. So this is the Bring Back uh, British Rail campaign, uh, which I founded in 2009 and have been running ever since, with the aim of popularising um, the idea of re our railways. So I work as in, in my spare time, uh, whenever I have the time, as the national coordinator, the sometimes spokesperson, um, and the social media administrator. Um, but it's specifically the absurd consequences of capitalism that I'm most interested in. And what I mean by that is the things that happen Uh, when you allow a system that's based on the myth of continual and infinite growth on a finite planet to continue through to its logical conclusion. And the continual privatisation of our public services is the perfect example of that. So at the end of um, 2003, I did a project called The Other Forecast uh, with a friend of mine, an artist called John O'Shea in Manchester, where we invited six artists to Media City in Sulfur Keys to make alternative forecasts of the future. So I used my other forecast um, as an opportunity to lay out what I saw as all of these absurd consequences of capitalism, based on the current evidence that I could gather, Um, and to speculate about what sort of world we might be heading towards if the multiple crises uh, which we see unfolding finally converge such as our increasing dependency on technology for performing um, everyday tasks and maintaining social bonds, the increasing energy consumption, which results from that, Um, our increasing alienation as individuals, and that's something I'll be coming back to later in this talk, Um, increasing levels of obesity, and, of course increasing CO2 emissions, uh, which are resulting in climate change. But the most important part of my artist statement for today's talk um, is the final bit, the bit at the bottom there, because this is where I aim to draw the link between these huge global systems and events, which are often... um, difficult to comprehend because of their sheer scale um, and intangibility to draw a link between these systems and the everyday life of one human being because none of us are separate from capitalism at all we're all living in the world we're all complicit in it and we're all partially responsible so therefore all of my work um is influenced by the struggles that I experience in the world and the indirect or direct impact of these free market forces, the impact they have on my day-to-day life. And a nice example of this is the regular frustration that I feel when I'm trying to buy a simple train ticket on the ridiculously overcomplicated and overpriced railway that we've been left with as a result of privatisation, but which I totally depend. Um, So, I began examining my everyday life um, and my everyday routine quite a long time ago, in a less knowingly critical way. When I did this project, actually, when I was still at art school, um, in Nottingham, I started this, and I decided to take a photograph of everything that I ate for a year, and to record information alongside that. But as technologies... um, As technology developed to um, make this uh, sort of obsessive self-documentation even easier, the concept of self-tracking or life-logging or whatever you want to call it, that the accessibility of apps and smartphones um, have made much more mainstream. As that started to happen, I started to become a lot more critical of the kind of culture of compulsive self-disclosure or instantaneous ego broadcasting, as I call it. Um, So I decided to quit data collecting altogether um, in 2006. And when I did that, I swung to the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And I decided to consciously try to remove myself from my work altogether. I do have a slight tendency to swing between poles. And I've always been quite an all-or-nothing person, which is where the reference to extremism in the title of this talk um, comes in. But the best example um, of the backlash um, that I've had is the active Twitter boycott, which I've been running since 2008. Um, And you can check it out. You can follow me. Although, as you can see, I I don't say a lot. that, over the last few years, I've allowed details about my life to start to creep back into my work. And I think I did this when I finally began to realise the significance of that famous feminist slogan, the personal is political. Because it's only when we're honest and open about the struggles that we face in our own lives that we can begin to notice the problems that we all share and then can start to identify and attempt to challenge the greater systemic causes of those problems. So I now believe that it's only worth disclosing personal stuff if it enables discussion about the big issues that our society faces. So I really believe this is the spirit of the Practice 360 um, programme. And so this is the spirit with which I will approach the rest of my talk, as painful as it might be for me. So I'm going to focus on a particular period of my life since the 15th of September 2008. Um, It's this period of time which most clearly shows um, how I've developed into the sort of artist that I am now. So the, the story I like to tell, and I tell it often, is that this is the date that Lehman Brothers, Holdings Inc., the world's biggest invest investment bank filed um, for the single biggest bankruptcy in the history of the world so it was the symbolic start of the global financial crisis which went on to dominate um, the next five years and given that i haven't I haven't heard much about what George Osborne had to say today in the budget I've still got to catch up but given that the coalition government has only made twenty three billion Pounds worth of cuts over this Parliament compared to the 28 billion pounds worth of cuts it intends to make in the next Parliament if it gets re elected, the knock on impact of this financial crisis um, is still still really yet to be felt in all of our lives. But this date, um, quite coincidentally, is also the date that I moved to Scotland. So, I was 29 years old, and I decided to move to Glasgow to do my MFA at the art school. And it's interesting to look at that decision um, in a little bit more detail, because at that time, I was blindly following the predetermined career trajectory of, uh, of the contemporary artist. That is, going to a prestigious art school and getting a master's degree. But why Glasgow, you might ask, and this is where it gets a little bit more interesting. And the fact is, it was a purely financial decision, because I knew that I didn't want to get into any more debt as a result of doing a Masters, to end up at the end of two years study in a worse position than I actually was at the beginning. So after much application writing, I was awarded this Leverhulme scholarship which would cover all of my fees and my living expenses at Glasgow School of Art so I decided to go there so that in itself is a classic example of the on your bike mentality that um, Thatcher encouraged that is if there aren't any work if there isn't any work or opportunities in the town where you're living uh, you should uproot your whole life and go in search of them elsewhere. The consequence of this, of course, was that I moved far away from my family, who were all down here in London, and my sister, who's in Norwich, and my niece Eve, who had just been born that spring, to go and live in a different country, far away, where I knew no one, and had to start again from scratch. And I also, at that point, walked out on a cosy, heteronormative relationship which I'd been in for nine years and it was the beginning of a far more neurotic and precarious existence as a single person, again. Before I start to tell you more about the ups and downs of that, and there are a lot of ups and downs, it's worth reflecting a little bit on why this relationship had lasted so long, especially seeing I wasn't actually even straight. Um, It was because (laughs) JB, uh, as, as he shall be referred to, we met at art school and we were both artists. And I'm sure he wouldn't mind you telling you all I'm sure he wouldn't mind me telling you all our secret, maybe he will, but he's in New York, so he doesn't know. (laughs) We both loved our work just a little bit more than we loved each other. And our relationship provided the perfect, secure environment for both of us to start out in the world forging those careers. So, although splitting up with JB was a terrible shock, and it took years to get over, being single wasn't actually all that bad, because I realised that it was much easier to make and implement decisions when you're on your own, and you don't have anybody else to consider or take responsibility for. So I could control elements of my life that had seemed a lot harder before, and so I could begin to remove all the contradictions that I felt I had in my lifestyle and to begin to close the gap between what I believed in and the way that I was behaving, to be the change I wanted to see. That's what Gandhi said. So I'd been a vegetarian since I was 12 years old but the older I got, and the more I learnt about the impact of the livestock industry on climate change, I felt that I wanted to start to boycott it altogether. So on the 1st of January 2009, I became a vegan. And then one year later, just as I was approaching the end of my master's, I launched this environmental policy on my website. So the policy has sections on energy, transport, recycling, banking, all the sorts of things that you would expect to see in the policy of a big business, but mine starts with a section on diet, which is something that you definitely would not see, because it would take a pretty authoritarian business to try to dictate what its employees could and could not eat. But when you're single and self-employed, you can do that. So publicizing this environmental policy helped me to practice what I preached, but also start to preach what I practiced. So it's a real set of guidelines for how I should live my life, as well as being a marketing tool a way of pr- um, proving my integrity to my to any potential collaborators or commissioners for that matter, showing them just how much I care about the world, goddamn. And lots of work has come off the back of it, including probably this gig and the other gig that I did for ArtsQuest um, two years ago. Um, but when I first moved to Glasgow, and this is why it was such a shock, I was living in a dark, damp tenement flat with a fellow student of mine called Juan from Costa Rica, but I wasn't very happy there at all. I had a very nasty landlord, a very nasty landlord that didn't even care when the heating broke in the middle of winter. Um, But there were lots of things that I couldn't control. like I couldn't control the contents of my fridge, and I couldn't control who supplied my energy. And I couldn't control when to turn the heating on or off. And people from Costa Rica like to turn the heating on a lot. So the biggest rebound thing I did by far was to buy my own flat. And in summer 2009, I helped to fulfill Thatcher's dream of creating a nation full of homeowners. By using my savings, uh, much of which had come from inherited wealth, to get a mortgage and get myself on that much-taught-about property ladder. But my, mo- my, hope was, my hope was to create a place of my own where I could feel secure in a city that still felt very new and foreign. And of course, house prices happen to be a lot cheaper in Glasgow than they are down here, but it did mean that I'd made a certain amount of commitment to a place that I barely knew. So I spent the whole of that summer uh, working on my flat, doing DIY, and that's another good thing of having been to art school, is that you're not scared about installing a new kitchen or or painting all the walls and and ceilings. Um, But I was increasing the value of my investment. But I was also taming it and controlling it and getting the place just right. But I needed to get a flatmate to help me pay the bills. And my first thought was that I want to get somebody um, who I share uh, values with. I want to get a vegan, and someone who's very quiet and very clean. Um, I'm gonna have to advertise for someone on Gumtree. But before I had a chance to do that, Oliver came along. So Oliver Braid was my friend from the master's course. And we became very close uh, as soon as we met in 2008, despite the fact that we had very different ethical codes. This man is definitely not a vegan. (laughs) But he is a very cheeky opportunist. And he saw how nice my flat was, especially after all the work that I spent months doing on it. And he saw that I had a spare room, sitting there, just waiting to be filled. And he would not let up trying to persuade me that it could work. And it took him three attempts. But when he finally promised that he would never bring meat into the house, I agreed to let him move in. And so began three and a half years of our new, strange, neurotic, homonormative little home. And in the last full year that we lived together in 2012, we ran a radio show together from our flat, The Ellie and Oliver Show. Um, And this is when I began to let the details of my everyday life creep back into my work. It was a kind of gay Punch and Judy. We often aired our dirty laundry in public discussing the tensions of living together live on air. What happens when two such self-absorbed individuals attempt to cohabit? But these tensions were definitely exacerbated by the landlady-tenant relationship that underlied it all. Because this year, in 2012, whilst whilst the Ellie and Oliver show was going on, we were broadcasting live uh, every Friday lunchtime at 12, I also joined a Das Kapital reading group to keep myself busy. And after reading two volumes of Marx's finest, it began to dawn on me that perhaps being a landlady, uh, that is, taking advantage of my class privilege and inherited wealth to profit off somebody slightly less fortunate probably wasn't totally in line with my anti-capitalist values um so i started to feel pretty uncomfortable with the contradiction that i had evidently been living um but 2012 marked another turning point in my lifestyle for a number of reasons and one of them was the direct impact of George Osborne's lovely austerity programme. After graduating from my Masters, I managed to survive for two years without getting a proper job largely through exploiting my poor tenant, obviously, um, but also from scoring working tax credits off the state on account of my low income as a self-employed person. And I actually advocated the working tax credits as a lifestyle choice to my fellow artists in a video interview that I did for an ArtQuest project with Jordan Mackenzie in February 2012. Um, But in April that year, I remember hearing the bad news. I was listening to Moneybox on Radio 4, as us capitalists like to do, and I heard that this little loophole, uh, which had been providing a lifeline to many artists, me and Oliver included, was about to be shut down. George Osborne's policy had worked. Because through fear of uncertainty, I was forced out onto the labor market in search of a proper job. And I managed to get my first teaching at Duncan of Jordanson College of Art that September, and in on the 12th of December, 2012, after an incredibly gruelling interview process, I was avo- uh, awarded my first permanent lecturing post, and just in the nick of time, too, as Oliver... Announced live on air in a show that we did called Developments that he was finally going to leave. So I found myself at a crossroads again. I could go back to the original plan of advertising for a vegan flatmate on Gumtree. Um, but the fir- for the first time, as glamorous as it sounds, uh, for the first time in my life, I now actually had a salary money coming into your bank account every single month, so I didn't need to. I could actually forget the hassle of dealing with another human being every single day, um, because I could actually, finally afford to live on my own, and at least if I did, I could cease to be that evil, exploitative landlady that I'd become. but as it turned out, this decision resulted in an even more contradictory existence. Although I finally got to control every single inch of my own environment, removing all elements of friction, like Oliver Braid, um, which had been hampering the smooth running of the Annie Harrison mo- machine, this new lifestyle came with the guilt caused by the sheer excess of living alone in a two-bedroom flat. The only way that I could reconcile this with my values was to begin to live in a more extreme ascetic way, to minimise the impact this lifestyle was having on the world. So I cancelled my landline, I cancelled the internet, I got rid of the TV, well it was Oliver's TV anyway, I cancelled the TV licence to reduce my energy consumption and to keep costs down. I then took to switching off the boiler at the plug. You should try this if you've not tried it. Uh, so I only use hot water or the heating when I consciously switch it back on. And I get I got my loft insulated and a thermostat installed, co- courtesy of the lovely Scottish government's Green Home Scheme. So I now know that I can survive at 14 degrees C quite easily with the aid of a hot water bottle alone. Um, but no matter how hard I tried, the fundamental contradiction... Was still there. That is our need to move to a more communal future, to share resources in order to live in a more sustainable way. So for last year's um, Glasgow Open House Festival, I did this project, The Transition Community of One, which I described as Um, Inspired by the Transition Town movement, which promotes co-production and communal living as ways to well-being and sustainability, Ellie Harrison will open the doors of her now single-person household for a screening of socio-political films. By inviting like-minded individuals into her hermetically sealed luxury apartment to learn about and discuss ways to change the world, she hopes to expose the paradox at the heart of her lifestyle, test the intolerance caused by solo living, and challenge her actually existing socialism in one person. So around the time that I did this project, which was 13th of April last year, I also unearthed another fundamental contradiction in my lifestyle that had been building over the last decade. I created this progress report which showed how my productivity levels in both work uh, measured here by the number of emails that I sent and in leisure measured by the amount of swimming I do in my local pool had been steadily increasing over the last decade with a particular emphasis on the Glasgow years, so from 2008 onwards. Whether I was aware of it or not, I had been gradually adapting different elements of my lifestyle to augment this productivity, refining and perfecting my systems to optimize the Ellie Harrison machine, And it was only when I took a look at this graph, which is based on real data that I've been collecting since 2002, that I saw the harsh reality that my life was simply following the trajectory of capitalism. I was mirroring its growth fetish, its demand for continual (coughs) and infinite progress on a finite planet, or in my case, within the limits of what one human being can actually endure. This is obviously unsustainable, and like capitalism's recurring periods of crisis, I'm sure it's only going to end in tears. So, you might not be aware of this, But it took me probably, it took me six days to prepare this talk tonight, (laughs) Nick. Um, Because I was attempting to boil down everything that I'd been reading about and thinking about over the last six months. But it was particularly difficult and emotional because I'm in a very different place now than I was when I wrote that copy back in December. Um, Because when I was writing about compromise... I was actually writing about love because I was starting a new relationship at the beginning, um, and I was beginning to realise how many things I needed to change in my lifestyle in order to make it work. But I am, as she will be known, dumped me in the new year, um, and the reason she gave and I don't know whether she will mind me telling you this either, uh, but the reason she gave was that we were two inherently different because she said that she defined her identity through her relationships with other people, through direct social um, interaction and connections, whereas I, so she says, define my identity through my work and therefore would always have to prioritise that. But isn't that what all artists do? But when heartbreak strikes, as it often does, i found that work is always there for comfort. To get me over this trauma in New Year I started a new study regime. Reading um, Henri Lever's Critique of Everyday Life, uh, which is described on the back as a groundbreaking analysis of the alienating phenomena of daily life under capitalism. It's perfect fodder for this talk, written in 1947. And bloody hell, this book helped me. Um, because, of course, it distracted me from the sadness, but it also um, enabled me to understand more about the situation that I got myself into as a victim of my own financial success. Um, In the book... Leverve describes what he sees as the paradox at the heart of the bourgeois intellectual. Now for bourgeois intellectual read conceptual artist because you can't really get much more bourgeois than that let's just face it. Um, But the paradox is that it's the activity that the conceptual artist does in order to, co- to connect to and communicate with society, i.e. their work, that is the very same thing that isolates them from that society. As we spend days and days locked away in our flats or in our studios on our own, trapped in the world of ideas, So, in the absence of meaningful relationships and estrangement from my family and friends, work stepped in to fill the void. Or perhaps the meaningful relationships and estrange- um, the meaningful relationships had been deliberately sacrificed for the sake of my work. Who knows? It's a bit of a chicken and egg thing. But it's certainly no coincidence that over the last 10 years I've begun to use my work as a more direct tool for connecting with other people, of challenging that alienating power of capitalism by organising more participatory projects and events. Projects which focus on bringing together individuals who are particularly at risk of atomization, such as artists, or self-employed people, or both. Um, But the most recent project that I've just finished, Dark Days, uh, which I staged at GOMA in Glasgow last month, involved a hundred people, who came together to take part in what I described as an experiment in communal living, as well as being a social inclusion project for a socially engaged artist, the artist who came up with the idea. So, here I am. I don't have all the answers that I thought I would have when I set out to do this lecture back in December, Um, I'm age 36 and I'm living and working in Scotland. I moved to Glasgow, as I've shown, for economic reasons, but now it seems I'm staying for political and ethical ones because I feel more at home in a culture that has proud socialist values, not that they always preach them, but that's another story, and I certainly feel more at home in an education system um, that is still free and accessible to all, I'd feel really compromised teaching art students in England knowing that they're now getting themselves into £27,000 worth of debt for the privilege. Um, But yet, I still feel isolated and there's always that pull to come back south where I'm missing my niece grow up and I've got two ageing parents who I probably should start taking a slightly more responsibility for. Now, Alistair Gray, who's a famous uh, Scottish painter um, and novelist, has been very critical of English people who move to Scotland. He says that they use Scotland as a stepping stone for their careers before they fuck off home. Um, (laughs) I don't want to be like that, okay? Because I really believe uh, that if you want to live a happy life, it comes from committing to and contributing to your local community, to the to people close to where you live. Think global at local. I really believe that. But we as artists operating in a globalised world are under continual pressure to live these transient itinerant and opportunistic lifestyles which i've come to describe as the opposite of thinking local and acting global so i can safely say i have no idea what will happen in the future but um i'm hoping secretly that it involves a little bit of compromise Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much. Eddie. That's fantastic and perfect.